This is a Federal News Network podcast. U.S. Customs and Border Protection plans to spend $46 million to update something you might not even know it does. Namely, the inspection of cargo coming into the United States, not by sea, not by air, but by rail. Here with a look into this program, CBP's Aaron Balker. Mr. Balker, good to have you on. Good to be here. And you are now acting as the information officer for the division of CPP that does this, but you've got quite a number of years on the street as an agent, so to speak, correct? Yeah, that's correct. I've been an officer for 18 years and uh, still wear the uniform, still operational, still in the field up in uh, Buffalo, New York, where we do have rail locations that you speak of where we do scan these trains as they come in. I guess we sometimes forget the trains go in and out of the country as well as around inside them, moving all kinds of things. Give us the uh, overview of CBP's program for trying to verify what's on a train and that it's all legal and should be coming in. Sure. So just like cargo coming in via truck, the same process takes place for cargo moving in via rail. You're talking about each day officers inspect about 25,000 pieces of cargo containers coming in to the United States at 320 ports of entry. And that includes those rail yards or those rail scanning locations. So cargo is still sent to us in advance. We still do know when those trains are coming in. We are able to target cars that we may have to take a look at. But what these scanners allow us to do is scan approximately 60% of the commercial rail coming into the country at various locations throughout the country. And how do you do that? Because there are boxcars, there are tank cars, there are dry bulk cars, there are coal cars. I mean, there's a variety of types of cars and they have some of them are open, some of them are closed. How do you go about that? And do you get manifests of what's on a train the same way as CBP does for a ship? Yes, we do. They are required to send us the information in advance of what's coming in. So then we do have an idea of what it is we are looking at when we are scanning it. The nice thing is, is this non-intrusive technology really gives us an efficient look. and We can scan large volumes of commercial traffic for contraband or people who may have hopped on the trains to try and come into the United States, you know, in between our ports of entry, sort of in, in an illegal way. And the officers, they're, they're really skilled and they're trained at this. And they look at thousands of these types of cargo containers every single day. So they're used to looking at what will appear as an anomaly in those. So for example, you said brake bulk. They know what it's supposed to look like. So if they've seen thousands of shipments of of grain, then when something is amiss within those scans, they know exactly what they're looking at. They can spot those anomalies pretty frequently. The technology then can see into what's going on there with x-rays? Yeah, exactly. That's probably the simplest term to put it in. It uses x-rays through like the generation of radioactive isotopes. So the way the system works is it can penetrate it and it sends the image back to the officer. Now, it's not like you can read a label on a bottle, let's say, but it gives them an idea of what's in the container. So, for example, if they say, hey, we have a 53-foot container full of plastic bottles, they know what the plastic bottles should look like, especially stacked up. But then they can also determine what anomalies will look like as well. Or if there's a pile of grain and it's usually a rounded load, if there's like a big depression in the middle of it, that might give you a clue to something. Exactly. If the container is supposed to contain plastic bottles and it looks like there's bags of something, then yes, that would obviously stand out and that's something that they would take a look at. And by the way, this is really off-the-wall question, but do smugglers ever also indulge in graffiti tagging? And is there any way of looking at trends or do you look at trends in the... rail cars are covered with graffiti. Does that ever tell you anything about what might be going wrong there? 
I would say, and I'm not going to give away all our secrets, right, but I would say that the officer is not only looking at what's inside the container, but what's also on the outside, you know, whether it's tampering with doors, markings, things like that, sure. You know, drug smuggling organizations, criminal organizations, they're always looking at new ways to be able to get their profits into the country. So in this case, we, you know, we're talking about narcotics. Yeah, they're going to find new ways to try and smuggle it in so they can spot what they're looking for as well. Sure. We're speaking with Aaron Balker. He's Director of Communications for the Field Operations Office at Customs and Border Protection. And now you are modernizing the scanning facilities at a number of rail crossings, rail entries into the United States. What's going on that you're modernizing here? Well, you know, technology always advances. We know that with our phones, our computers. The same is true for non-intrusive technology. We get more efficient. We get better scans. And in the commercial environment, especially when you're talking about coming out post-pandemic, our economy is starting to reopen. Businesses are starting to open People want more goods now. We have to be as efficient as we possibly can. So even though things have been sort of shuttered for a long time for the last year, we haven't stopped continuing to advance our technologies. And in this case, we are talking about installing new scanners at 12 locations throughout the country beginning in the fall of this year. And it's going to allow us to be more efficient when it comes to processing those commercial rail trains. And where will this be taking place? Where will you be installing these new scanners? I guess a variety of places? A variety of places. Washington State, Texas, a couple locations in New York, California, Minnesota, Arizona, North Dakota. So throughout the country, you know, our 12 busiest locations, which handle about 60% of our overall rail traffic. And this will speed the inspections of trains coming through? It makes them more efficient, yeah. So the trains can actually come in at a little bit of a higher speed. But it also, by efficiency, what that means is when the scans are actually clearer, the officers can actually make a better determination on what's an anomaly, which means they're not asking for certain cars to constantly be pulled off. Where they may not have been able to discern the anomaly before, it'll be a clearer picture for them now which means if they don't have to look in certain cars, it's more containers after they get scanned that can just continue to move on to their destinations. Sure. So for automobiles crossing road crossings, you know, every three seconds translates to hours saved at the end of the line and this kind of thing. And CBP, just like TSA, they keep those statistics. I imagine the train operators must love this because the delays would be reduced dramatically from the way you describe it. Yeah, that is correct. So if the train can get to its rail yard faster and those containers can then move on to their next destination, either via train or get put onto a back of a truck or whatever it may be to get to its final destination, if there's less of those containers that we have to open because we've gotten better scans and we can actually see what's in there and we're confident that there are no anomalies, then ultimately, yes, from an operational standpoint, it's better for the companies moving the goods, yes. And these scanners, just give us a sense of how big they are. Is it something like you can hold in your hand and aim at the car, or is it a big machine like a telephone booth? Or It's something the train drives right through. So it, it almost looks like a big gantry system that would go from the bottom of the train kind of right over it to the top of it so that we can see right through both the top of a rail car and the bottom of a rail car. So we figure it, they're pretty tall. They look like a gantry system. Uh, it's it's definitely not something you could handhold. You wouldn't be able to see through the entire train if it was a handheld device. So these are larger systems. And can it handle the so-called piggyback loads or the bimodal modes where there's truck trailers on top of a flatbed? Yes, they can. And is there any crossover in technology for ship container inspections? Because they have barcodes on those, but they also look inside. And train technology scanning? 
they're very similar. Some shipyards, we have gantry systems, but we also use what's called a mobile scanning system for non-intrusive technology. Sometimes we used to call them Bacchus trucks. Um, they're mobile x-ray systems. So it has like a big boom that hangs the source on the other side so we can scan a truck and then the truck drives through that once the container has been loaded on it. But again, we're still seeing from the bottom of the truck up to the top of the container. And by the way, what's the worst thing you ever saw in a train car? Oh boy, we've seen a lot. We've seen weapons, we've seen people smuggled, we've seen a lot of drugs smuggled that way. Give you a couple examples recently in Laredo, Texas, you know, the non-intrusive technology identified $1.2 million in cocaine and fentanyl uh, in separate incidents. Buffalo, New York, the same type of technology interdicted about $6 million worth of marijuana. Del Rio, Texas, in May, we had automatic weapons seized, eight of them in total. So these types of things, this is what we see on a regular recurring basis, right? You'll see people smuggled in. You know, they'll hop onto the train cars and try to hide in natural voids. Um, but with, the, with with this non-intrusive technology, really enables us to spot it. Wow, what a way to try to get in. No dining car on a freight train. Aaron Bowker is an agent and director of communications for the Field Operations Office at Customs and Border Protection. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely, anytime. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here 
and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. 
And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.